Why do you do what you do? What is your why? Here we talk about North Carolina real estate, business, and life. Today's Real Talk. I'm Justin Kazepis, your host liaison on another journey this week. Thanks for being here with us. And today we're going to talk with Vinny Giglio, a local developer in the Lake Norman area, specifically Iredell County here in North Carolina. And we're going to find out his why. And I'm curious, do you take time to think about your why? Do you take time to re-examine, to contemplate, to explore potential new avenues and areas, to reflect, to remember? Talked about several times, we've all got the same 24 hours in a day. One of the things that motivates me is the ability to maximize that 24 hours. The ability to, at the end of the day, say to myself, this was a day I enjoyed. Now, some days are hard. There's events that are going to take place in our life that can um, rob us or strip us of joy. But part of it is, what is it that we do on a macro level that motivates us each and every micro day. And that's what I want to talk about today with Vinny. I want to talk about his why. And I want to encourage you to think about your why. Why do you do what you do for work? Why do you live in North Carolina? What about your why is important? And how has it shaped you? How will it shape your future? You see, until we close our eyes for one last time, we have the opportunity to pivot, to change. Change is hard, but sometimes change is necessary. There's a lot of change going on in the world, some of which we are okay with, some of which we are absent from, some of which we are actively fighting against. (laughs) some of which uh, we are leading the charge on. I think about my own home and, you know, right now as my kids get older, uh, they are leading the charge on fighting bedtime. Why? Well, because some shows are just that great we need to watch one more episode. or Some moments are so good and sometimes playing outside is so much fun that we don't want to stop. But that short-term excitement, usually in the morning with a lack of sleep, is quickly forgotten. So we've got to maintain that balance. And I'm excited again. Vinny Giglio of MV2 Investments joining us today to talk development, to talk some real-world things going on in development Affordable housing, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about water and sewer capacity. We're going to talk about unified development ordinances. We're going to talk about real things as it relates to development. 
and what are some things we are doing right? What things can we improve on? Let's have a real conversation. Thanks for joining us. I need some real talk. Oh, I need some real talk. Give me some of that real talk. Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com. Justin Kazep is joined now by Vinny Giglio of MV2 Investments, uh, a, a, a developer, an investor, military background, a pilot, uh, overarching good guy from what I could tell so far. Vinny, I, I don't know if you're a betting man, but if I was to say North Carolina is up only for the next 10 to, to 20 years, in your opinion, what do you think would be something that could stop that from happening? Sure. Um, from what I've lived through so far, I've never seen growth like this in my life, um, anywhere I've been. And I've, I've come from a major market. So to, to, to initially say that is even incredible, right, to be able to say that. Um, the, the challenges I've seen is that we're growing so fast. Where do you house everybody? How do they get around? You know, is there enough capacity, um, sewer capacity, water capacity to take on all these new projects that are that are being proposed or coming out of the ground? So really, it's not about the growth or the growth going elsewhere. I think it's about can we keep up just from an infrastructure perspective to handle it? That would be my biggest challenge. And, and, and the, the government leaders I speak with across the board are echoing that same sentiment. When you've yeah. got areas that literally are allocating capacity into 2024, 2025 timeframe right now, you got to wonder how long is that sustainable? And, and that's just one of the many things we're going to talk about today. But we're fascinated to, to learn about your story, Vinny, because uh, you've got a unique background. And, and like you mentioned, you came from a major market. Um, let's go back even a little bit further. Sure. Uh, I, I want to hear you're a pilot. I love the idea of becoming a pilot. I, Vinny, I'm trying everything I can to convince my wife to let me get my pilot's license. You know, Do I'll it. show up at the next <laughs> local municipal airport and I, I'll be there for my, what is it, 40 hours? I'll get my 40 hours. Vinny, give, give me three months and I'm there, bud. I'm there. So talk to me about your background, kind of how you got to where you were, and let's analyze that for a little bit. Sure. I, I grew up in a town called El Segundo, which is in Southern California part of Los Angeles County. Um, if you're familiar, it's just south of LAX. So it was, it was a small town vibe in a, in a huge city, right? So everybody knew each other and, and uh, went to all the schools there, grew up in the, in the elementary, middle, and, and public high school. Just had a great time, played sports, played water polo specifically, and swam and surfed. That was like my, my initial years. Um, when I graduated from high school there, actually during high school, I actually started flying. Um, at 15 out of a little airport called Hawthorne Airport. And it was a dream since I was a five-year-old boy. Um, growing up next to the airport, I'd see the planes fly over. And my, I still have to this day something I drew in kindergarten that was like, I want to be a pilot. It was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like, I want to be a pilot. And I drew an airplane and lived into that dream. Eventually, um, by 23, I was flying for the airline. So um, it, was, uh, it was a crazy road. Um, I spent some time in the military. I, I was an 11 Bravo, which is infantry in the army. Um, I joined of, in uh, April of 2001. I went to basic training September 2nd, 2001 at Fort wow. Benning, Georgia. It was, I get goosebumps still because we're, we were in this like holdover facility for about a month in, it, it's, it's almost like a prison. I'll put it that way. You like eat, you can't work out, can't do anything. There's 
you know, thousands of guys staying there waiting to go into the next basic training, um, uh, training group, so to speak. And seven days after being there, you know, you're just shocked and they're playing mind games with you. And we get called into this large room and they did it individually with like 500 guys at a time. And the chaplain's up there and he's like, America's under attack. We're going to war. And we're like, yeah, right. Right. This is, this is just one of those games. And sure enough, me being kind of a rebel, I, I went down and I, I kind of went in some of the back rooms and hear, hear these drill sergeants staring at a giant TV. I'll never forget it. And it's planes hitting the World Trade Center. And I was like, oh, man, this is this is going to go a different direction than I played when I joined. Right. Sure. So. um so I ended up getting deployed as, as some U.S. operations, in, uh, mostly in the middle of Utah, which didn't even know this stuff was out there kind of thing. And uh, I was set to go to Iraq in um, May of 04. Uh, I got out in April of 04. So it was an option for me to go. I opted not to. And, and um, a lot of bad things happened to my unit that went over there. I got pretty lucky that I didn't have to go. I'm very thankful. Um Anyway, we don't have to go down that path with stories, sure. but that's just a big part of my life because that was a pretty shocking um, episode. During that time, I was going to school online, so I was completing my degree. I, I did a four-year degree in about two and a half years and was also flying um, during that duration, building my hours, becoming a flight instructor. And then at 23, um, I got hired by Northwest Airlines Regional Carrier, which was called Pinnacle at the time. And... When I got hired with Northwest, I really didn't care about how much money I was making. I was making gross pay of $1,277 a month. I was working 26 days a month on call, spending most of that in um, Detroit, Michigan, which is one of the hubs of Northwest at the time. They had Detroit, Minneapolis, and Memphis, Tennessee. And so I'm staying basically in a hotel room. I'm paying rent for 200 bucks a month with seven other guys, seven other pilots. And when we got called, you just went to the airport. And during that time, I was a little bit lost because my student loans were coming on payback, which I owed about $150,000 and $850 a month. So you can see between my rent and my student loan payment, there was no room for anything else. Yeah, not much uh, leisure activities going on beyond that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. It was, uh, it was survival time, believe it or not. Um, and so one of my training captains, and remember, I dreamed about doing this my entire, since I was a little kid. It was the dream job. Flying those jets was incredible. I hand flew probably more than anybody in the world. I mean, usually you take off and you set your route and you autopilot and you're done. And my captains would be like, you sure you want to keep flying? I'm like, heck yeah, this is what, I, this is what I'm doing this for, right? So um, I was, the moment for me, do you mind if I go into that? Yeah, go ahead. The transition yeah. out? Yeah. The moment for me was um, a captain on a four-day trip and in, in, we landed in Minneapolis after one leg. He bought me, he went to a bookstore and he goes, look, you're young. Uh, I'm going to buy you this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And during the next couple weeks, I read the whole book. And during that two weeks, I'm telling you, this is the universe speaking to me. During that two weeks, also one of my trips landed in Washington, D.C. Um, I, was, I was taking over the slot of a, of a pilot that had gone over his flight time. So I was actually flown down from Minneapolis. Everyone's waiting on the plane for me to show up. And... and and um, I flew I flew one trip with that captain, got it back. And on the next flight, it was a different captain um, that I was going to fly with. And I get on the plane first and I'm just kind of hanging out. And he walks back. He's an old gray haired guy. And he looks at me. He's like, 
how old are you? And I was like, I'm 23. And he's like, get out. I'm like, what do you mean get out? He's like, get out of the airline industry. He's like, go make a lot of money and pay me to fly you around. And I was like, okay. So rich dad, poor dad, old gray haired pilot. I literally flew home on the next trip, uh, called the airline, said, I quit. Where do I send my uniforms? Wow. No idea what I was going to do next. Wow. Literally. So that's my, that's my story. Yeah. And, and, and so first let me say thank you for your service. I, I mean, there's all different levels to it, right? You can get deployed overseas. You can be stateside. There, there's all, there, there, there's all different aspects to it, but anybody who's willing to sign up on that form voluntarily uh, to say, Hey, at least for this portion, this season of my life, I'm giving it to the service of my country and, and, and my fellow, my fellow brethren and citizens that that's not an easy decision to make. So, so I'll, I'll just say thank you for that. Um, my, my brother-in-law is former Navy, uh, and his wife is current, uh, Air Force. So, um, very, very grateful for, for anyone who's willing to, to give, give, you know, that service in their life. I love one thing I love about North Carolina is how focused we are on our, on our armed services, on our military folk, um, have had some great conversations with some legislators and even that conversation, no matter what we're talking about, it always comes back to, Hey, anytime we write law, we've got to keep our, our military members in mind if they're overseas or, or they're here domestically, but they just can't, you know, immediately take care of something. There's always a backup provision for our military folks. So uh, again, very grateful. Um, I, we can do what we want in this country because right. of people that fight for our freedom. And, and no matter what side of the aisle someone may fall on, I would just hope everyone keeps that in mind. It's only because of the freedoms that we fought for that we can even have the debates we can. There's a lot of places in the world you you can't have debates. So I would just keep that in mind for, for exactly a lot of right. people. Um, but exciting stuff on, on the, on going from a pilot. And I'll tell you, I got a connection with you already with rich dad, poor dad. So I grew up <laughs> um, with a, in a real estate family. My dad was a broker my entire life, but wasn't always kind of easy, you know, dropped out of high school, swept parking lots to keep food on the table for his family as a kid. And then growing up and him just wanting more for me, taught me the value of, of raising money, right? And, and making money. And, and then it gets even deeper, right? Because then you got different tools. Okay, then it's not about making money. It's about keeping money. And how do you strategize that? So right. what a simple tool. And, and in that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, obviously has touched millions of lives. Yes. And, and so fascinating to hear how that one moment, right? You made a decision and it changed the trajectory for you. So then, okay, you make this decision and it's like, hey, I'm out of here what do you do next? Like what, like, like you, you obviously weren't making that much money then. What'd you do? Move back in with mom and dad or what? Like what happened? Yeah. Yep. And I, and I couch surfed for a long time for many years, actually, after that, just whoever had food in their pantry and whatever, one of my buddies would, would take me, you know, it was just kind of like, it, it, it was kind of fun, but it was also scary as heck. Right. Yeah. Um, I did. So when my, uh, growing up, my dad had a lot of health issues and he was a painting contractor. And when he had his first heart attack, it kind of pushed him out of that physical realm of being able to do stuff. So, so eventually he went into um, the loan business on the single family side. And when he started, he started with a friend of his. It was like, he's, he was a single family guy and his buddy's like, I'm going to go into commercial. And that was the, that was kind of the two paths. Right. So my dad went down this line and I remember watching him try to deal with the emotion of dealing with people in the, in the, on the single family side that to me, he was great at, 
to me, I don't have as much patience. <laughs> I don't know. If, is that fair to say? Um, and then his buddy went on the commercial side, which is it's numbers. It's anal analyzing data. Right. And my pilot mind is like procedures, numbers. I can remember numbers like they're going out of style. So I decided to go that route. And also the difference was my dad, you know, when he was at the end of his career and actually passed away a couple of years ago, he, he passed away broke. His buddy is incredibly wealthy. Not that it was about that um, 100%. It's just I grew up with very humble beginnings. And when my dad was going through all his illness, we sometimes didn't know where our next meal was going to come from. And I just vowed as a little kid and growing through my teenage years that I, wouldn't, I, I don't want to have that for my family. Yeah. You know? Yeah, my dad passed away in 2017. So again, I, I know, I, again, another connection we've got there. And, and it's an amazing, you're, you're bringing up what I think most people, when they get into real estate, they finally realize, right? So so I, I got became a licensed real estate broker in 2012, started off as a residential buyer specialist, um, and then kind of worked my way through the ranks on that and then went to law school and then started my own firm, transactional, still staying in real estate for some crazy reason. Should have just went to the courtroom or something like that, done criminal, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> But but you come to realize, okay, residential and commercial are two very different realms. And Absolutely. I think that, and this is personally from the broker perspective, and I and and this is a this is kind of a hot take opinion out there, and and it is what it is. I, I think where North Carolina lacks from an education perspective in the licensing aspect of real estate is a finite path between residential and commercial Absolutely. and that education piece. Yeah. Um, the life you live as a residential broker is very different of that of one of a commercial broker. Um, there's a lot of politics in that. If we get into the, you know, realtor association level and the, and the different boards and the different avenues and different ways of marketing properties, right? Like there's a lot to it. And so for you to recognize that, and then you say, okay, I'm, I'm assuming you went commercial and I'm just going to, I'm going to take that assumption there. So what's the particular sector that you started in? Was it multifamily? What, where did you start and where are you Great at question. now? Yeah. So I had a friend that was a commercial real estate sales broker in Southern California. And he referred me to um, a shop he'd worked with on numerous deals that was in Orange County. And they specialized in multifamily and commercial financing um, as a brokerage. Right. So I went there, I worked in a back room, kind of got my start and was kind of self-teaching. There wasn't a lot of support in that company, but it gave me an opportunity. And after about four months there, not only did the commute stink because Southern California, it took me, you know, an hour and a half each morning to go 20 miles, um, just to work. Uh, there was a company closer to my house and they had a great reputation and, um, I put my resume in, wasn't hearing back multiple times, tried to get some people in there to do it. So one day I just went up there and just banged on the door and, uh, there was a, there was a secretary up front and then a glass door and it was kind of shielding everything. And I just walked in, I go, Hey, I'm Vinny. Um, this is what, I, this is my experience. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your company a lot of money. This is how I'm going to do it. And she was like, you're going to do what? And so <laughs> eventually talked my way into the back to meet with one of the owners and he, basically laid the same thing on the table for him and he was kind of taken back by it too. So he, I ended up meeting. So long story short, I met with all three owners of the company that day and they happened to have one guy that was looking to hire um, an assistant and he interviewed 25 people and none of them worked out. And he's a Vietnam veteran. He fought in the jungles of Vietnam for like seven years. Wow. And 
I was put in front of him um, that day as well. And um, he and I, I, I have an understanding of who he is and what he's been through. And he and I hit it off. And um, I ended up working for him for the next, oh gosh, six years. And then said, hey, we're going to start our own company. So I became a licensed broker in California. We opened our own shop. There's more to a story than that, which maybe we'll get into. Um, we ended up becoming one of the top commercial real estate finance companies in Southern California on the multifamily sector. And so I've got two, almost two decades of experience in that sector of real estate before now being in development. So it's funny that it's funny that projection, because I share a similar one in the sense of sales, right? Like at the end of the day, people projects, especially in the commercial realm, you've kind of got two different mantras You've got, and I'll focus on the buy side for a second. So when you buy a property, you you've either you're either going to value add this sucker, meaning you're going to do some type of improvements, you're going to increase rents, you're going to create more value for a project, That's right. and then sell it right for let's right. say a compressed cap rate, or just you're getting better dollar per square foot depending on the unit, your right. rent, your lease rates are better, et cetera, et cetera, or you're going to do a long term hold right and try to create cash flow uh, and, and basically exponential generational wealth, right? Those are kind right. of the two main avenues when you get to the buy side. Now, starting though in sales, you learn how to talk the talk of what developers are looking for, right? When it comes to marketing of properties, what would you say was kind of your biggest niche that you guys focused on when you were trying to sell a unit? What is there anything that comes to mind that just says, yeah, this is what we did really well. We, we were hardcore on the phones. We dialed for dollars every morning or no, we really understood this particular zip code. What was it for you guys? Sure. So because I actually, since I specialize in the loan side, my specialty was teaching people how to tap into their equity and their properties, manipulate rents, um, pull out the equity via refinance, buy another building or buy two more buildings and grow the portfolio out like this and then eventually grow it up. So, for example, we had one guy who had eight buildings when we started with him. And by the time we were done with him, he had 71 buildings barely took any money out of his pocket to do anything. It all came out of his buildings as we put this strategy in place for him. And it was in one area of Los Angeles. Mm. So, so we that call was, that the bigger pockets would refer to that as the Burr method, I believe is, is, is what, what that would be buy, renovate, refinance and repeat, I think is kind of what they call that, yes. but you're doing it on a bigger scale. I mean, commercial doing that on a commercial <laughs> scale. I mean, that's a little bit more risk right there. Well, you know, with multifamily, it's, it's, let's say you have a 40 unit building, right? 10 units go vacant. You're still doing, you could still make the deal work. So that's why we were a little more aggressive in the plans and the size of the buildings that he was buying. And some of our other customers were buying. It made sense, but you're, you're right. I mean, especially if you're starting with just a commercial building or a smaller multifamily building, it is a lot of risk. You gotta, you gotta build in some carrying costs and you hope the market doesn't turn and, you know, but the way that we strategized it, um, I don't think we ever had a customer lose any money. Um, even during the down times, they, they were able to ride it out. And then because we never had a loan go bad. We, we arranged uh, and closed about a, th about a thousand, maybe a little more than a thousand loans in the last two decades, uh, which is a lot and never had a loan go bad. It's interesting because I, some a lot of the conversations are happening. This this market right now is very different than the great financial crisis of 2008. Absolutely. For any, anybody who lived through that and was in business at that point, um, very different than very now. Very different. 
But there's one common theme right now and then of maintaining liquidity and making sure you have good cash flow. That general principle is the same right now. Um, And we could probably sit around together uh, with some whiskey and and, and a cigar and talk all day about, uh, you know, Fed moves and and unemployment rates and material costs and labor costs. But we'll try to keep it as as PG right now as we can. So but what I want to know, what was that aha moment for you from, Okay, you had an aha moment of, okay, I'm not going to be a pilot. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a broker. I'm going to be in real estate. So what was that moment where you said, okay, I'm tired of being a broker and a lender. I want to be a developer. What was that moment? So there was not that moment. And I'll tell you why. So this is hilarious because, uh, there was a lot of changes happening in Southern California, especially my wife grew up on a farm in central California. She's like, I don't want to live in Southern California forever. And I'm like, I'm going to live and die here. I'm a surfer. I do all this. All my friends are here, right? 35 years here. Well, after we had our first child together, we'd gotten married, our first child, and my aunt passed away. She lived in upstate New York a week after we had my first child. So I, my wife's like, go. So I fly back to upstate New York, and this will tie in in a second. And I'm, I'm staying in the house in Seneca Falls, New York, and it's wooded behind her house. So the first morning I wake up, I look outside and it's trees and it's quiet. And it's like, I just got this overwhelming sense of peace. And we had visited North Carolina already. Um, and in, in fact, Huntersville, right? So we got off the plane. We're like, oh my gosh, it smells like grass. Oh my gosh, they have water here. It's tra- there's no traffic. Like all these things that in Southern California are like, are real things that you yeah. don't think about when you live here. And so in that moment in her house, um, as soon as it was early enough to call her on the West coast, I called, I said, we're sending you to North Carolina. We're going to find a house. And she's like, wow. Okay. Sounds great. So she flew out. We found our first house. We moved here about nine months later and I used to do CrossFit. And so I found a CrossFit gym two days after moving here in Davidson. And I show up at nine 30 on a Wednesday morning and it's all ripped moms, literally like I thought I was in good shape. They were smoking me. I mean, it was crazy. I was so impressed. But, any, but anyway, one of the moms at 930, literally, I walk in the door. She walks up to me. So friendly. Who are you? What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? And I was like, I'm Vinny. I'm from Southern California. I'm in commercial real estate. She's like, you need to talk to my husband. He was in commercial brokerage in Lake Norman. So long story short, he connects me with someone who's looking for a partnership on a deal in Mooresville. He had seven and a half acres under contract. I'd never developed before, but I'm here. I am an expert at multifamily financing. And he goes, you want to do a deal with me? I'm like, sure. So we bought the land together 50-50. We determined it was going to be a 72 unit. Um, we completed that building in December of 2019. So it's like, literally, I had no no plans of doing this. Um, I was still running my LA company at the time, which I sold uh, last year. And it just... I just kind of fell into it and now I'm redeveloping a whole city and now other cities are approaching us to redevelop their cities and we get more into that. Well, uh, so let me ask you then, if you remember what, what, cause 2019 was a, was a lifetime ago now, right? Especially in the development world. <laughs> yep. uh, do you remember your back of the napkin cost per door on that? On, uh, 2019, oh my you remember? Well, it was actually 2017. We were putting the deal together. Okay. I mean, we were like, 130. Yeah. The good old days. The good old days right there. Oh my gosh. 130. 
people dream of that. How do I make 130 work now with lumber coming back down is nice, but, um, but at yeah. the end of the day, uh, yeah, yeah. it's a, uh, it's amazing. So, okay. So you land in Davidson, you obviously got good vibes, right? You're obviously thinking this, this thing's working. Uh, what's been happening since for you? Talk to me about the, the projects, how that one's gone. Did you exit it? Are you still holding it and, and kind of what's been in the fire and what's cooking right now? Sure. We went under contract on it yesterday. Um, we don't, we don't. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I, our plan, our plan, once we dove into it, once we saw the demand in that area and we saw that area start changing around it, once we invested in it, it was a site that the town was trying to get someone to build on for 40 years and we ended up doing it. And um, we started picking up, we picked up one other site in downtown Mooresville. It's in Mooresville. We picked up one other site in downtown Mooresville, which is now Mill One. It's a, it's a big callus project up there um, that's done. And we just, we just saw the growth and the the reinvestment from the town and we saw the people moving here and we just decided um, let's go all in. Um, and I forget, go again back to where you want me to cover along those lines. Cause there's, well, of- well, just in general, because what, what I what I think that um, people want to know more in a real time fashion right now is okay. L- let's talk about a typical development project, right? So, for s- sure. some of some people that 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 watch and listen to the show, th- they're experienced developers as well. They they know the ins and outs. They know from A to Z what they're looking at. But there's a lot of people who just like investing in general, and yes. real estate obviously has piqued a lot of interest. I mean, when we're talking about right. a market where you can produce, if you LP on a deal and you can get six. 7% cash flows preferred, right? Not to mention exit liquidity, potentially. Uh, it, it's enticing for people. So let's talk about when you find a site, talk to me about what your, what, what's that feeling? You know, I get that feeling when I, when I, I love dirt, Vinny, I'm a big dirt guy. I love dirt. And when I get that feeling, you know, I get that tingle on the back of my spine, like this is spidey sensors are tingling right now. What is it for you? What do you look at? And you say this, this one could work. What is it? Sure. So, uh, it's funny because I approach, because I'm not a developer by trade, I approach deals a little bit differently, actually. Um, I, I have learned a long time ago, if you do things with purpose, the money will come. So when I look at a site, I go, man, what, where can we live, work, and play? What would go great here? What would provide value to community and a legacy, right? So we, we look at sites from that perspective. And how are we going to put our heart and soul into this where people are going to go, wow, they really did good by this community. And as long as whatever our vision is, because sometimes my vision gets too crazy and they dial me back, right? Like this is how it goes. Um, As long as we can take that site and at the end of the day, the numbers do work and we can build to the quality and not cut corners. That's, that's what we do. So that's what gets me excited is how can I bring value to this town and how I recognize that is, what is especially what is the local government doing? Are they reinvesting, or are they buying up all the all the stuff themselves and putting their administrative buildings in it, like that, or, or services? You know, um, there's a big difference. I've run into both, and um, usually the towns and the staff and the planning people that are that are in that are pro development, um, they do the best, and they also have the best layout of what ends up coming down there. Um, <sighs> the development's coming, whether you like it or not. So, you know, you want people that are going to do it the right way. Right. That's, 
You're striking a chord right now, Vinny. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. You're striking a chord with some people who, because we've got, we got people who listen for both ends of the spectrum. Yep. Bring on every development we possibly can. We like economic growth. You know, it produces revenue, so we don't have to increase our tax rates. Right. You got that end of the spectrum. Then you got the other end of the spectrum. If you put your building near my house, I'm going to lose my mind, Vinny. Right. And so wh- how do you strike that balance? And you're talking about it's good for the community that's pretty subjective. So, so sure. when you think of good for the community, what's your definition of that? For example, if there's a if, if there's a if there's a site like in downtown Mooresville, there's 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 many sites we've bought up that we know is eventually going to get developed. So, and there's a demand for let's call it apartments, right? People want to live in that town. I mean, our building right now is a 600 person waiting list. There's obviously demand for those units. So, if I come in and I do it to the right quality, a place I would want to live. Number one, I'm doing a service by bringing in the right product, right? Number two, we have commercial that we incorporate on the bottom floor of most of our projects now. So we've been approached by the Applebee's of the world and the just the big national chains that are just trying to come into these markets. And we say, nope, hold on a second. I want to walk every single commercial tenant prospect that comes into this building because I want to create an experience I want to create something where if I lived in this building or if I lived down the street that I would want to come down here and I would want to, you know, go in and there's Jason. He owns the restaurant. And he's always there and he's got his heart and soul into his business, you know, and he's making sure the quality is top notch. And also outside of the commercial, I want to make sure that I'm not impacting flow in downtown as much as possible. For example, I can go I can go take one of my sites in downtown Mooresville right now. That's two acres, build the whole site and not put any parking and not have a parking study. That's per the code. I can do that. But do you know what I do? I take less money on the back end. I build it so that it's self-sufficient. So I'm not taking away from the other businesses um, and parking in downtown. And I make sure that it's self-sufficient. So I feel like, yes, there's two sides of the spectrum, right? But if a development deal is going to come, even if you're against development, at least you have someone that's paying attention to those details so that at least you've got a chance for it to be less disruptive and also like you're supporting the localities. You're not just doing it for a dollar, do it to make a dollar. That makes sense. Call me weird, Vinny. I, I love reading a good TIA study. You know what I mean? I don't know what it is that gets me, but, but you know what I mean? Average cars per hour just gets me going on some days. And so what I'm wondering, cause you bring up transportation and so I'll tell you my, my, my vision would be this. We need mass transportation at a state level at this point. If yes. we if we don't create some forward thinking momentum and true forward thinking momentum about transportation, it's going to only get worse and You're we will right. reach a point we can no longer catch up. And that is an yep. issue. So I see it where we can connect. I would love to see the mountains obviously being one of the most difficult just with the geography or perspective. But let's say if we can connect like an Asheville or a Boone down to Charlotte. Let's take Charlotte through the triad, Winston, Greensboro, High Point area. Yep 
to Raleigh, to Fayetteville, to the coast. How can we create a mass transportation option, most likely rail, let's be honest, and it's going to cost money, but it's going to, it's the most appealing to the masses is what I would argue at this point, short of like, you know, EV planes that just kind of come and go like drones with, with people real quick. Uh, uh, how do we create something like that? Even let's go hyper local. If it's going to go through Charlotte, we got to connect Lake Norman somehow. Right. Uh, at this point, I'd say Redline's dead, coming coming from the Linux light rail system, right? So uh, s- shout out uh, Norfolk Southern and everybody else involved on that deal right now. <laughs> How do we connect Lake Norman to Charlotte on a mass transportation level? What's an option? Let's get it all out on the table. Who's got ideas? What do we do? It's a great question. I mean, right now, the only option we have is to expand roads and highways, right? I mean, that's really, from a practical standpoint, something we can do immediately. And I, And I've been... I've been emailing senators and being involved in those discussions. And and that's really in the immediate future, what you can do. I mean, unless you're a star Wars fan and you can somehow develop a shuttle that'll come pick everyone up and take them. Right. Like, (laughs) I mean, airspace (laughs) is really the next (laughs) tunnel system. I I thought you would have it though. Vinny being the pilot, I thought you would have had the flight simulator ready, locked and loaded to go. Oh my gosh. I live about 15 minutes from my projects right now in the cities we're doing. And they, they, they came out with this new um, single pilot drone called a Jetson one. And there's a couple of allocations. I almost put my name in the hat about a year ago and was going to build a pad on top of one of my buildings just so I could like take one more car off the road. I could be that guy that's like, what, what the heck is that? You know, <laughs> you, you would be that guy. Baby. I, I could, everyone would be stopping and staring, like, right? What is that thing? <laughs> the battery technology isn't really there yet for the flight sure. part of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, if, if they're like, well, it might last five to 20 minutes and you're like, well, what happens after five if it decides to go out and I'm I'm at a thousand feet, right? Head yeah. Head. Yeah. So you better have your swim trunks on over Lake Norman. <laughs> right? yeah. so, so transportation, obviously, we could spend days talking about that. Absolutely. Then then let's talk about the big elephant in the room of water and sewer capacity, right? Because uh those issues again, forward thinking the development, it, it will be, look, you want to disrupt a town? Let let some employer come in and some big developer say, hey, we're about to bring you 5,000 jobs. Thanks, but we can't handle that capacity right. right now. And what does that do in the long term for a community? So how do we fix it? How do we how do we get invest the right? Is it's it's obviously money, right? Let's be honest. It's yep. money and spending dollars on it. I'm of the belief, though, government's going to spend my money. I would rather them spend it on something that's actually going to return dividends in some way, shape, or form to my life, to the community's life, to my family's life. Uh, And I think infrastructure is one of those things. Yes. But what do we do from a capacity perspective as projects want to come in, developers want to come in with great projects like the ones you talk about, uh, but they can't. So what do we do? We're running into that right now, personally, on a a couple sites we're looking at. And and we are are getting – we are getting given some allocations because of the quality of the projects we're going to do. Um, but it's kind of above our pay grade in a way, because it's not like there's much we can do other than build a project that provides more tax revenue to go back into that, into that tranche. Right. Um, I think there needs to be some change at the state level. I met with one of the senators recently that was talking, who's in charge of transportation. And she was talking about some of the ways that they get their money for, um, doing these projects and it's really restricted here. I was incredibly surprised by how the system works and it works in differently in every state. So I think honestly, it's, it's more of a legislative move 
to be able to direct some more revenue to those areas. And I think they got to really consider doing it quickly because like you said, I mean, we're going to get overwhelmed. Projects aren't going to be able to happen. Um, when projects don't happen, you're going to have towns that are going to get behind the curve because there's other towns that don't have that issue. In, in Iredell County, we are not running into capacity issues at this point. So if you want to go do something in Kannapolis or Harrisburg or somewhere where they're having the issues, guess where all the growth is going to happen? And you're going to have migration to those areas. And then these areas are going to left kind of going, what do we do? We can't, we can't grow. Right. So I'm with you. This is a, this is, this is another, like, how long do we have, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, and again, it's about spending dollars and, and look, Fiscally, I'm fiscally conservative. I'll say like, I don't want to just write a blank check. I'm not that kind of person. Um, I enjoy doing things, but again, if the dollars are going to get spent, I would rather them get spent on true. And when I say true infrastructure, y'all know what I mean when I say true infrastructure. Don't give me this fluff and puff nonsense. It ain't infrastructure. I'm talking roads. I'm talking bridges. I'm talking capacity, water and sewer treatment facilities, uh, energy, uh, huge main infrastructure components uh, to spend dollars on. I'm okay with. It doesn't bother me because it's not, and it's not going to get cheaper to do it. So the longer we wait to do it, the more expensive those products get. We're seeing in that right now from the dot perspective on a lot of products that got weighted on and now uh good luck on the acquisition phase when you got to pay out for market value because the government does have to pay market value on eminent domain uh let's see how much money there is now two years later so uh very curious to see how that lands and and, you know i'm 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 preaching to the choir on this and i'll get off my soapbox but (laughs) generally speaking it's because i'm so passionate about local community right? right and Everyone focuses on such a national level, uh, but states and local municipalities is really where quality of life happens. Exactly right. Uh, And and because that's where the control is, right? Property rights are individual state rights, as they should be. I'm okay with that. I'm a real estate attorney. I like it. Uh, I'm also an investor in real estate. I like that I can just go to my local municipality, have a conversation with them on a particular use plan rather than having to apply to the state or the national level. Of course I like that more uh, because people locally understand what they want in their community more. So let's talk about the, the other, the other big, uh, big elephant in the room, affordable housing, Vinny. Um, at the end of the day, there's a lot of talk. I hear a lot of talk, Vinny, and I know you do too. People want to act like we are working to address affordable housing in our communities right now. <laughs> really? Okay, so um, let's talk about then uh, costs because cost is what drives at the end of the day. Vinny, why aren't you and every other developer taking a hit on your books to allow for people to move in at less expensive rents? I'm rent? so glad you brought this up because we have been deep in this conversation for months from our heart perspective of the development side because we agree there is no – and it's getting less affordable. And we feel bad for a lot of people coming in here. But the problem – let's start here. The problem is that people – a lot of people don't understand what it takes to do these developments and how much they cost. And then also the cost of money now is here versus here. It keeps getting more expensive for us. And at the end of the day, I can't spend $25 million on a project for us or our investors to come out of pocket every month for a hundred grand to support it. Like that just doesn't, that just doesn't work unless there's an entity that can offset that. Right. So the only thing that's penciling right now is market rate deals. That's just how it is. Now, 
I will tell you this, and I'm going to go big picture for the people that aren't familiar with the state of North Carolina, especially. State of North Carolina is one of the most challenging states to build affordable housing. There, I was told this yesterday, our owner's rep was sharing with me, he's done a lot of projects for a development company that's the largest affordable housing uh, developer in the entire country. They have stuff in every state. You know what the only state they don't own or have built any affordable housing is? I can take a guess. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, that's where it starts. That's where it starts. And these guys, you know, everybody screams about affordable housing, but you also have to have at that level the support to be able to make it work. So what we've done and what we're doing right now, and we're in talks with Mooresville to be the first prototype for this, is developing a, a, a real-time affordable project. And let me back up even one more step. Affordable in North Carolina is not affordable. <laughs> Sometimes you hear people, we built an affordable project. Well, affordable just means that you can only rent a unit for a certain rental amount that meets someone who makes an income that's 80% or less of the average income in a county, right? So when you're building in Iredell County, affordable units and the average income is $80,000 a year, they can, your affordable rent level is about the same as your market rent level. It's not affordable, but they call it that. It's like the, you know, it's like this mirage. So what yeah. we've, we've been trying to do is we are working with the town right now, literally uh, met with them two nights ago. Um, with one of our concepts where we want to create units that would rent for five, six, seven hundred dollars a month and come to market at that literally at that level with rent restrictions for a period of let's call it 10 years with a blend of actual market rate as well to somehow back into numbers. And we've been working with a specific architect on designs for these buildings to make them a bit more efficient to try to get them to pencil. So we need more private initiative to do this. The problem in North Carolina also is there's so much work for developers. Who the heck has time to commit to something like that when they can go build this market rate one and it's a you know 20 times return on the back end and the affordable one's going to be negative, right? Yeah. So we're actually treating it as like a passion project to try to come up with something. We've, we're meeting with the, um, with the chief of police to ask him his need for police officers. We've been meeting with the school district to ask them their need for their teachers. So it's, it's, you, you struck a chord. Like it's just, it's so much on our hearts and on the front of our brains right now. It's not even funny, but it's very challenging. <laughs> it is. And people just assume that, that it's the developer who should concede on it. It, it is no. my part of the conversation right. that I'm always confused at. Why are we brushing over it? Like as if a private company, any private company in the world just has to concede when ultimately the regulatory side of this is driving a lot of these costs. When you've got municipalities rewriting their unified development ordinances yes. and there's parking requirements and there's green space requirements and and, and then there's testing requirements and, and you think about uh, runoff and, and, and all, everything uh, related to impervious areas. And, and watershed that goes into these projects, the, 
like utility contractors are one of the most expensive contractors I have. I should have been a utility contractor. <laughs> one, because I'd be making a bunch of money, right? Now there's a lot of costs with it. Don't get me wrong with the cost of equipment and everything like that. But also I would just love to drive a bobcat all day long, man. Like I, th- or an excavator or a backhoe. Like let me out there, just move some dirt all day. Right. But at the end of the day, there's cost each and every step. Every step. And those are real. Not, I mean, and that's just hard costs. I don't even want to get into soft costs. Let's talk about, you know, just application fees for the tap side. That's purely on the administration, because when you're, you're paying at cost for the utility crew to come out and make the tap, but then there's, you know, five, six, in some cases, seven figure costs on the administrative side of a tap, you know, uh, uh, management is such a big piece, Vinny. And, And I think that when people think about a project in a community, at some point, it's like, okay, we can accept that there's going to be some traffic congestion while this product's being done. We can accept that it's not going to be super pretty and nice to see red clay because we got a lot of red clay here in North mm-hmm. Carolina getting moved around. But what's your take on the management piece of a project? How do you guys like to do it of, okay, we know this is going to disrupt. How do you limit that disruption as much as, much as possible in your projects? Oh, man, it's so it takes so much coordination because – when you're on a site, you not only have all your equipment, you got to have a place for everyone to park that works on the project. And when you're in a downtown area, like what we're building in, where do you, where do you put these people, right? Without also disrupting the normal business. So luckily for us, we own other sites that are, that are blank right now. And we actually utilize those sites to park um, storage containers and trucks and all sorts of stuff so that it doesn't disrupt the normal every day. Um, but <laughs> it's it's such a big challenge it's it's actually ends up being a little bit above my pay grade because when it comes to actually contracting the site that's something i obviously hand off to the gc i get involved when it becomes a real problem right so they a lot of these a lot of these general contractors have been doing this so long they just kind of have a way that they make it work whether it's hey we'll clear this side of the site and we'll put stuff over there and then we'll kind of move over here and move over here um and, and then you have the and then you have the challenge of all that mud ends up on the streets, and then you got letters from the county going, "Hey, you got to clean this up." It's like it just happened five minutes ago, <laughs> you know. <it's- laughs> <laughs> yeah, and people wonder why a Class B and Class C industrial is on the rise so quickly because with all the development that goes on, these contractors and subs got to have somewhere to put all the equipment they Absolutely. got and all the materials. So Absolutely. that's why you're seeing a big rise of industrial uses right now. And yep. I think a lot of municipalities are kind of teetering like, I, I think we got enough storage units right now, right? Like that's also a conversation that's happening right now. So are, are you are you really liking the, the, the multifamily still at this point? Do you like mixed use, retail? What, what, what are we liking right now, Vinny? I'm a multifamily guy through and through. I think people always need a place to live. And the statistic right now in in the Charlotte area is if every single developer that's here were to build to max capacity for the next 10 years, we could not meet demand of today for Mm. residential units. Um, There's just so many people coming here. I mean, if you don't live here, you can't really understand what the boom is like. So I'm a multifamily guy through and through, but I also believe you got to put butts in the seats first and then that supports the local business, right? So I'm a big fan of, of mixed use. Um, I like seeing some commercial on the first floor, um, unless you're in an area that's a little bit of an outlier, then you can't really get a, you can't, it, it's hard to get, you know, Jason from over here to open a restaurant that's in a totally undeveloped area. So maybe that one's just housing. So it's really location dependent. 
Yeah, I agree with you on that. And unless you unless you could stick a thousand units and hey, you got enough local residents, you right. can support the bodega. You know what I mean? Yes. But um, yeah, it just depends there. Uh, what do you think from a materials perspective? Uh, well, I guess let, let's let's talk twenty seventeen to twenty twenty two. Well, twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen, right? It's up only. We love it. Twenty twenty to twenty twenty two. Man, if that wasn't a rough two year time period as yes. it relates to materials, obviously lumber. What else? What what was it like for you, Vinny? How did you make out? What what was kind of those? You mentioned you're, you're the guy they call when there's an issue. I imagine you got a lot of calls between 2020 and 2022. Brutal. What happened? Brutal. Yeah, what happened? It was insane. But the fact, like, luckily a lot of the stuff we do buyouts on, and and so we set prices, which is great. But as the as we had new projects that we were looking at, I mean, how do you how do you project a pro forma? on something where the prices aren't locked in. So now we're, we're, we're um, factoring in much bigger contingencies. Um, we're actually in the middle of a deal right now where, where we were starting with metal frame construction at the beginning because it was cheaper than wood. We had to like seek out these companies to find alternatives because wood was so expensive. And then during the projects and things didn't work out with the metal stud company, but wood had come back down. So now we're going back to, it's just this like, there's so much movement and um, lack of being able to project forward that you have to literally be a moving target on anything and everything. Right. I bet your architects and engineers love you guys for that moving back and forth. Huh? I bet, I, bet they, they love it. <laughs> I would love to be a fly on the room in the room on the other end after those conference calls end. <laughs> They're like this, like awkwardly smiling. Sure. We can yeah. do that. Yeah. Oh, why not? God, yeah. Look, I've gotten a ton of very, very large bills from the architects to to change back to wood because everything has to be redrawn even though we're like already in you know third of the way through the build um it's crazy and you just have to adapt and then you might have to figure out how to raise more money on the back end whether through the bank and and don't get me started on interest rates um most construction loans are adjustable i don't know if a lot of people understand that most look i didn't say it Vinny. you're the you're the one who brought up a interest rate okay let me go back to affordable for one second can i just (laughs) can i just harp on one part of so in development deals, there's a ton of risk, right? Because my partner and I on our deals, we're the only ones that sign on the note. So we we provide a personal guarantee to the bank that says, if this deal doesn't work out, we will pay you back. Well, I don't have $19 million sitting in the bank to pay back the loan, right? So there's <laughs> you have to pro- project these projects so that they so that they pencil. Yeah. But when you have an adjustable rate loan and the Fed keeps raising this prime rate. And when you borrow $20 million, that rate goes up 1%. That's $200,000 or more a year in interest that you're paying to the bank. Not, it's like when your car breaks, like your, like, let's say your transmission breaks in your car. You gotta, you gotta pay that $3,000 bill. Ain't nothing prettier coming out of that car. It's just something you have to do, right? (laughs) That's the analogy I use for this. So what's happened is interest rates have gone up what over 4% literally in the last year. So since we started this one project, rates have gone up four. So that's $800,000 a year, just in interest. Now we can only, only in eight or nine months, not even a full 12. We're right. not even at a full 12 month on the cycle I just yet. Blanket it into the 12 months, right? Just kind of say, and it's like, yeah. how do I afford as a developer now to cover an additional $800,000 in interest expense alone, not including cost of construction and labor and material, I can only charge you, the consumer, so much rent. 
So there come, there's like this bounce. So, so with that being said, how do I build affordable units? <laughs> if market rate won't even carry, right? Luckily on that project, we're good. It, it, I'm not trying to dog on that, but I'm just trying no, to put yeah, in perspective yeah. the big picture here so that a lot of people understand what goes into this. You got to be willing to have a real conversation. I feel like that's what's come to the, the concept of logical conversation is just out the window at this point. And I, I don't like that just nope. personally, like, like, look, I'm, I, I hate to say this to the politicians and I, and I try to be honest. I'm like, look, I'll, I'll play the game. I'll let you have your little spiel, right? Politicians. But, but at the end of the day, I'm not dumb and I don't believe people are dumb. I think we can, I think a lot of people can see through noise and, what the people are hungry for right now is realness. Like, like what are we doing to fix this? Like, like I get it. It's a struggle. No one's arguing the fact that this is hard right now. Everyone accepts that, but what are we doing to move forward? What are actual solutions and ideas? Come up with an original thought. I mean, give me something here. You know what I mean? That I can bite on and chew on for a little bit, but uh, without that, even without any actual thought provoking conversation, I'm just not interested. And so I'm like, then fine, we'll, we'll just kick it to the private sector and have some real conversations. And that's fine. Like, well, it is what it is. Even, so. even the other night when we met with the town, um, we showed, they asked us, we were, we were deep in this affordable discussion and they're like, well, what if we build condos and there's down payment assistance and all this? I go, okay, well, let's do a scenario. Let me show you the math, right? Here's a single condo that's, that let's say sells for 350,000. That was the number they threw out. And even with them giving $75,000 in down payment assistance, right? So now the cost of that condo affordable is $275,000, right? Mm. Sounds, sounds great. Except a year ago, the payment on that condo for the person that's trying to buy it was $780 a month. Mm. And I did the math and I showed them on my financial calculator. I go, with rates today, it's $1,800 a month. Even with your down payment assistance, how is that affordable? Mm. It's not. So these are so and they were like really wide eyed. I'm like, oh, you're right. I think it's a matter of educating a lot of these people to show them what with numbers on this calculator, what actually is the reality of this situation. Right. And I put po- and I and I bring up politicians and there's a lot of great ones out there. There are oh, actually huge. some politicians that um, I, I think a, a lot of I'm grateful. A lot of our leadership throughout North Carolina is strong in the sense of wanting to find something. Now, yeah. some of them, I would say that I know have ideas are a little bit scared to say what their ideas are. So um, I, I hope that the that they'll uh, uh you know, get a little bit get more encouragement and stronger in, in that willingness to speak up type realm because a lot of them have some good ideas they're not willing to say. But I also feel for for your local staff at the planning departments because they're charged with um, making sure that this bubble, if you would, doesn't just burst overnight, right? Because right. there's a balance between man, we're getting a lot of good development right now. That's super exciting. But at the same time, like if you develop every square mile of what you've got left you kind of shoot yourself in the foot long-term for potentially what could be uh, because it's a very different game of tearing down structures and rebuilding or repurposing right. as it is to pure ground up development. What do you, what do you think we look like in 10 years from now? At least let's call it in the Piedmont area of North Carolina. What do you think it looks like? Uh, you know, it, it all really depends on the local government and what their, what plans they're putting in place to make it not burst or not become just a cluster, right? So Piedmont, I'm not as familiar with, is like Mooresville, Kannapolis, Concord, those types of areas um, that we're working in real closely. But 
for example, some of the towns that we've been working with have master planned or put into effect new development ordinances, like you mentioned earlier, to try to um, stay in front of that. But the towns that aren't doing that, it just ends up looking like a cluster. Like what? Like why is that apartment building that we just approved sitting next to like, you know, who who knows whatever else it is that just totally clashes? You know, it's like then then you end up looking like LA <laughs> or like somewhere else that just didn't plan properly, right? Um, so I, I see a lot of the towns around Charlotte, especially starting to really get serious about that. They're hiring outside counsel. They're out hiring third party companies to come in and say, this is what your town should look like. This is the areas where you should be building this type of density and these types of things go together. And I, I'm, I'm pretty confident for the future for most parts of Charlotte that they're going to look pretty good and they're going to be pretty efficient. There's some towns I'm worried about, <laughs> you know, you got a lot of you got some that um, I, I think with the growth that's exponentially happened in the past two years didn't really have on their bingo card. Hey, let's really examine this comprehensive right. plan in our policy maps. Right. Like that wasn't really like a forefront thought for a nope. lot of these municipalities. And now it kind of has to be. And to so be. if you're a board, if you're a commissioner, you're a board member and you don't understand those concepts you got to be willing to say you don't understand and bring in outside help, exactly. right? Like, and that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard pill to swallow, but do it. Rip the bandaid off and let's get, right. get some consultants in here to start talking about things. Cause again, I'm looking at it. I think the economy is a lot simpler than people lead on to be. People want to make it very high fluent, but there's two factors, Vinny, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, wages and spending. At the end of the day, every dollar that somebody earns becomes uh, ability to buy things, which then becomes income for somebody else. And that cycle is really the drivers, which means we've got to maintain and increase jobs. Right. It's all about jobs. So how do we keep that going? How do we entice businesses to come? We look, let's bring one up and let's be real about it. Tepper entertainment in rock Hill, right? I can, we can all, we can all like, Hey, let's add, let's add rock Hill to our prayer list right now yeah. with what's going on down there because we don't want companies to come through and not everyone understand a deal and then things blow up and what's the potential impact going to be. Right. We're a little unsettled right now. How do we protect that kind of future job growth perspective, Vinny? The nice thing about Charlotte is there are a lot of cities that aren't in that predicament that do that and that have the space and ability to grow. So Number one, Charlotte is just such a business friendly area and state of North Carolina is so business friendly. I don't really see from a high level that influx of business slowing down. But what I do see is the areas that it impacts will be very specific, right? So I, I don't really see it as as much of an issue maybe from a high level, but, but locally I do. You're absolutely right. So what happens there? they may go up to Mooresville and be like, Hey, will you do something? And I know Iredell even has tax credits for new businesses. So they, they may just shift and then Mooresville grows first. And then eventually Rock Hill gets their stuff together and then they're next, you know, but I don't see, I, I just don't see a lack of growth here from a bigger picture at all. Is that Qual quality of life is, is, is very strong in North Carolina Absolutely. across the board. What you're looking for, we've got it. I, I think is just the answer. Like, Hey, what do you want? And then you just kind of have the pick of the litter across the board. 
I mean, I can drive to the beach in four hours. I can be in the mountains exactly. in two hours. I, I can do anything. I the weather's much great want. all year. You get a little change in the season, which is phenomenal. You get all four seasons here. It's yep. not bad. You know, my family moved from California after the earthquake, the Northridge earthquake yep, in 94. And we never, and they didn't look back. And, right. uh, I'm grateful for, for North Carolina and what it's done. And I only want to see it. Up. I think North Carolina is up only, but eventually up only runs out. If you don't, uh, do the right thing during that period, Absolutely. there's some basic concepts and basic conversations we've got to get back to. So people like you in the marketplace that are doing some great things, Vinny, if, if you wanted uh, someone to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to kind of look you up and see what's going on? Sure. We've got um, a website. It's mv2invest.com. That's probably the best way to filter through to us. Um, I've got a personal Instagram, Vin Giggs, V-I-N-G-I-G-G-S. That sometimes can filter through a little quicker. I check all my messages on there. I've got a pretty big following. Um, but yeah, or come up to Morgan. We'll see what we're doing. Start. There you go. Open house. Open house. Vinny's got the open house yeah, we'll to come door, and look. We'll keep the door locked. <laughs> Just make sure you knock. <laughs> it's definitely going to be keyless entry, I'm sure. Yeah. I don't doubt that. So, so, t- so no. <laughs> one piece of advice you can give to somebody, let's say, wanting to get into the development game or, or invest in real estate or some type of piece of advice for, let's say, a life-changing event and is about to pivot. Vinny, what are you giving to him? Give him one good piece of advice. At what age? <laughs> <laughs> Any age your okay, choice. I mean, hey, let's make it universal. One, here's one piece of perspective and advice that I think everyone should hear from a high level. Um, the age that we live to these days is is very long, right? And I get approached a lot of times by the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds, the 40-year-olds, every, all, all spectrums. Even had one guy at 55 ask me, hey, I want to I make a transition. And so the first thing I tell them is, well, let's say you live to 75, right? What used to be the career lifespan, not your lifespan, but the career lifespan, about 20 years, right? You generally in history, you do something for 20 years, you retire and then you move on, right? If you're 30 years old and you live to 75, you have two more career lifetimes. So it's never too late to make a move. I think starting there and just realizing that you're not stuck and you're not too old is probably the one thing so many people need to hear that I think has stepped over. Mm. Never too late to make a move. Uh, and I look at it as always investigating your why. Why do you do what you do? Why Absolutely. do you love what you do? And uh, life is short. Uh, it is, we're living longer, but still at the end of the day, it goes by in the blink of an eye. And, uh, you know, and I, and I make this argument just to convince my wife not to make me do some new food trend because I just enjoy meat too much. Uh, <laughs> life's short. Let me just eat that. So, you know, that sirloin or that, that strip real quick. That'll be fine. But, uh, Vinny Giglio, MV2 investments, MV2invest.com. Um, we'll get you, we'll put your link on the, on okay. everything, Vinny. Very grateful for your time. We appreciate it. And, uh, hope to check in with you and, and see you just kind of rechange an entire community here over the next few years and decades. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Today's Real Talk, todaysrealtalk.com, Justin Kazepis. Info at todaysrealtalk.com, 844-STUDIO-4, the phone number. We've got our Q&A questions ready to go for the day. Uh, Always excited to take the Q&A sessions. Big shout out to Vinny Giglio again for joining us earlier on the show to talk about development. Um, Some real conversations that are hard to have, but are necessary. Um, And so I just want to emphasize again, 
it, I, I'm not poking fun at any politicians. I'm not poking fun at any uh, type of planning department staff. It's a hard job. It's a hard gig, but we've got to have real conversations. And so if you think that just high level rhetoric is forever going to work, it's not. Uh, people want answers. People want to uh, have a plan in place. So I would, uh, I hope you take it as encouragement to uh, have an honest discussion. And if you're hiding behind a facade, um, that's not going to last forever. So let me just say, I'll encourage you. And if hey, you want to have a real conversation, you can always come on our show and we'd be happy to have one. So, uh, all right, our Q&A session. Larry in Sparta wants to know, how do I subdivide my property? Larry wants to know, how can he take his property that he owns and uh, chop it into smaller pieces? Uh, Larry, there's, there's going to be um, the best piece of advice I can give you call your local planning department that has the zoning rights to your property. So give them a call if you're in a local uh, um, uh, incorporated town, like if you're within uh, Sparta, um, call Sparta, talk to the planning department, uh, find out from them what they would require for your particular property. Every uh, zoning district has different rules. Also, uh, when we say subdivide, there's a lot of factors that can go into that. Are we talking about cutting it in half or you wanting to make a major subdivision and everything in between? Uh, and also what's your intended use of the property, right? So a lot of factors that go into it, um, you know, public access, right-of-ways, utilities, so many things. So what I always recommend starting with is the planning department that has the zoning authority over your parcel. They are very kind. Most almost, I've, I don't know if I've ever had a negative uh, interaction with the planning department when you're calling, asking general questions. That's their job. Um, they enjoy helping people. They're passionate about um, going through UDO and going through uh, requirements of property subdividing. So uh, that would be what I would recommend is give them a call. They'll walk you through it. Richard in Greenville wants to know what happens if I don't pay my property tax bill. Richard wants to know, is the book, is the law going to come after him uh, if he does not pay his property tax bill? So uh, by statute, um, property taxes are, are have a super priority on your property and a uh, taxing authority can indeed uh, foreclose on your property if you fail to pay your property tax bill. Uh, they can technically after the uh, due by date has come. So again, in North Carolina, property tax bills are considered due September 1st of that particular calendar year, not considered late until January 5th of the subsequent calendar year. So if you uh, did not pay your previous property tax bill and it is now late, technically the uh, taxing authority can initiate a sale of that property in order to collect those taxes. I find that usually it's multiple years worth of bills that accumulate prior to a municipality uh, conducting such a sale. Typically, the reason being that the cost to conduct the sale 
if you do it just purely based on one year's tax bill for a majority of properties, does not even cover the cost if they were to collect then that tax bill from a sale. So just heads up on that. If you do not pay your property tax bill, uh, eventually uh, the taxing authority will come knocking and they can, in fact, uh, take the property. Uh, They can sell it at auction. Now, one of the other pieces is just the general interest on that bill that begins to accrue if you do not pay your property tax bill. So if you don't pay it now, you're going to pay more later. So uh, pay it, uh, you can pay the same price anytime between September 1st and January 5th. Some municipalities even offer a discount if you pay it prior to the September 1st due date, which is uh, pretty cool. In my opinion, I think that that's a, that's a nice uh, thing for a municipality to do. Hey, you pay your bills early enough, we're going to give you a discount. Uh, I like that. I'm in favor of that if they believe from their budgetary perspective uh, that that works. More power to them. All right, we've got Robert in Wilmington asking, how do I know if it is a good time to sell my house? Robert wants to know, how do I sell the very Pico top of the market? And what, Justin, does the crystal ball say about how to predict what the market is going to do in the future? Well, Robert, you're in luck today. Uh, And it's not because I've got the answer. It's because I'm going to smile and just say, you got this, Robert. You can do it. You can sell at the Pico top if you want to. Uh, no, but it, it's it's all relative because is it a good time to sell is dependent on, number one, do you have to sell? I think back to my broker days, um, the first thing you want to do as a real estate broker if you're going for a listing um, is find out what's the motivation of that seller. Why are they selling? Is it just leisurely to, you know, move up in the marketplace to a bigger home or to downsize? So it's not like I have to, but it's a want to. Or is it, hey, we're relocating or uh, me and my spouse are separating. And so one of us has to move out. So we decided both of us are going to move out. Uh, Is it I need cash and I need cash now? Uh, Motivation is a big factor. A lot of people, too, um, don't think about it. But as a buyer's broker, that was also my number one goal was to find out why is a seller selling. So I'd call the listing broker. Hey, listing broker, how you doing? Good to talk to you. How's everything going? Good. Hey, just out of curiosity, what's going on with your sellers? Why are they selling the house? When you start hearing those conversations, um, you know, that's, uh, that's a little bit of the cards there in the action. And are you willing to give up that card? Depending on the market, uh, depending what side you're on, you may be willing to give that card up. No problem. Not worried about it. And the other side may want to uh, hide a motivation uh, as far as for selling as much as possible. And, um, you know, with to an extent, so long as it's not a material fact, you don't have to give that information up. Um, So keep that in mind for you uh, negotiators out there. So when is a good time to sell? How do you know if it's a good time to sell? Number one factor is your motivation. Do you have to sell? Now, if you want to sell, um, you know, look at the comps, have a competent real estate broker in your local market, put together what is called a CMA, a market analysis of your property and uh, see if the number makes sense. Um, People are funny. They think real estate only goes up. Um, Now, historically, it goes up but that's not without its ups and its downs. 
uh, I, as I emphasize, uh, it's not uh, how much you make on your sale as much as it can be what did you buy the property for. So if you bought the property years and years ago and, you know, it's still never been worth more than it is today, maybe a good time to sell. My question for people selling right now is where are you going? Because when you sell, you got to have a place to live. And uh, if you're happy with your place you're living at, and you know, people who want listings and want more inventory to hit the market aren't going to be happy with me saying this. But uh, if you're if you're just going to sit on the sideline and think the market's going to go back down sometime soon, uh, if your interest rate is sub, let's say sub five percent, maybe sub four and a half, you know, you're you're taking a bet on wondering if that market's going to bring those interest rates that far back down anytime soon. If you're sub four percent, you really got to think uh, in the, the the longer term uh, and some immediate short term pain you're going to have if you try to go get a new mortgage right now. Because big difference in a monthly payment by borrowing at three percent than it is at six and a half, you know, six five and a half percent, seven eight percent. Uh, big big difference in monthly payment. So uh, I hope you find that helpful. If you've got a question, again, eight four four studio four is the phone number. Give us a call. Let us know uh, what's going on in your world. If you've got a real estate related question, happy to do what we can to help. Happy to get you connected with somebody. Info at today's real talk, todaysrealtalk.com. Subscribe to the content if you want uh, to check out the other episodes. All the shows are there, video and audio format. Uh, very grateful to the radio stations that have us uh, broadcasting in your markets. Uh, support local. We, we're big on that. And uh, we definitely, obviously, believe in the power of radio. So, uh, Justin Gazepis, 844 Studio for today's real talk. We'll see you next time.